Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our warning premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. I am thrilled today to be joined by a very, very close friend of mine, uh, someone I deeply admire, one of the most interesting people I have ever known, uh, somebody I trust and love completely, Father Brad Easterbrick, who is coming to us from Rome. How are you, Father Brad? Doing great, Steve. It's great to be here. Well, um, we're going to have a conversation that goes through your very, very interesting career, but um I thought I would start out by sharing this story about you from the John McCain campaign, because before you were a Catholic priest, you were a very, very able and skilled political staffer. And uh, as it came to be, it was August of 2008, and um, Sarah Palin became the Republican nominee for vice president of the United States. And as things would play out, you and I wound up in Sedona, Arizona, uh, where I had to take over her debate prep. And this was in 2008. And, you know, a lot of people probably today don't realize that 2008, we were still using videotape, right? It was it was the pre-digital era. So we recorded this debate prep and it was horrific beyond any measure of my ability to explain in the English English language, a, a spectacle of incoherence uh, of the highest level. And I, I said to you, I called you aside and I said, take that tape, destroy that tape, pull that tape out, cut that tape to pieces, boil it in water, chop it up some more, put it into a Federal Express package and send it to my house and never lose personal custody of that, that tape. And and that's exactly what you did. And, and all these years later, I have here, I have Brad, I have the, the Sarah Palin shredded debate tapes from 2008 that you personally microwaved, shredded and FedExed um, and what I'm going to do is for everyone who appears on the podcast, they're going to get a, a paperweight, a, a clear paperweight with some of the shredded tape in the middle of it to commemorate that that chapter in American politics. But you have uh, you have been around presidential candidates. You have been around the pope and you have served your country as a naval officer. You were one of the leading defense attorneys the United States Navy in the Pacific Fleet as Lieutenant Brad Easterbrook, and you still serve in the United States Navy and will ultimately return to active duty service after your parish assignment in San Diego as a chaplain. I think you hope to deploy with the Marines, but an interesting career. It's uh, It's been a, a lengthy career, and and as you, um, as you have recounted there, uh, there have been a lot of uh, exciting and interesting adventures. Um, you know, I was thinking about it the other day as I was preparing to to come on your your program here, and that um, you and I were one of maybe a handful of people 
four or five who were in Sedona, Arizona, uh, for that debate prep. And um, and you know it, it was it was one of those events. I'll let you describe uh, how it went. Um, but I do I do remember very well that you said this is one of the most important assignments I've ever given you is to just <laughs> to take this tape and send it to me, but destroy it on the way there. And and so I did. I I I sliced it and and microwaved it and and sent it to you. And uh, and I can see that you still have it. Um, but you know, it's one of the greatest honors of my life to work on the McCain campaign uh, and to to be a part of that. I mean, I was very very young, relatively speaking. I was 23. I, we we celebrated my 24th birthday in Wasilla, Alaska, of all places in September. And and that was actually the September uh, before the the full-blown meltdown of the economy and where that went and everything uh, that changed. You know, I was I was thinking when we first met, it was I was a White House intern. You were the vice president's communications director. Uh, and we were prepping for the Supreme Court justice uh, confirmations. It was the summer of 2005. We were having lunch in the West Wing of the White House. And um, and the world we were discussing at that lunch uh, in 2005 was a completely different world than uh, what we were experiencing in the summer of 2008. Uh, so much had changed between 05 and 08. And then if you think about it, between 2008 and today, so much has changed. I uh, obviously uh, took a, a different path. Um, one was into the Navy and to serve as a Navy judge advocate as an attorney in the Navy, and then now as a Catholic priest. Um, but we've maintained a friendship over those years, and I'm very, I'm very thankful uh, for having gotten to know you and to um, to have you as a part of my my life experience over these years. Uh, a lot has happened, and 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 yet here we are able to have this conversation. Yeah, no, it's a it's a mutual affection. Believe me, um, like I said at the beginning, um, you are a person um, who, as you go through life's journey, they say the average person will meet ten thousand people over the course of an average life. Um, I, I suspect that I I might be a little bit higher in in that, but when you when you meet you know, that many people over the course of, of life, you, you remember the people who stand out that have high levels of integrity, uh, a sense of honor, uh, who are good people. And, and, and that was always you. And your life um, has gone in the direction of service, military service, um, part of the United States Navy, uh, deployed in the fleet. Uh, and also uh, service as a as a Catholic priest, uh, religious service. But let's start with the naval service. Um, I remember, and I always talk to young people about this. People will come up and they'll say, "Hey, I want to run campaigns. I want to do this. Right? I want to get into this field." They and they and and depending on where you go, you know, and how elite the school is, right? You know, the kid will be there with the notebook out and tell me what you did in 1997, right? You know, and it's, you try to explain that nothing that I did a generation ago is really helpful for you um, in charting out your path in life. But we had stayed in touch. You went to law school. 
you were finishing law school, you called me up and I remember the conversation we had and it was about taking the path less traveled in life. Um, you were not enthusiastic um, after I think having worked in the White House, having uh, worked at really and seen it all on a presidential campaign to go be an associate in a big, big law firm. And so you did something different. Talk about that. You know, I had always admired service and I was always looking for, um, I guess, the right opportunity to to say yes to service in the in the U.S. military. I never found um, before this before this time, I hadn't found, you know, what really um, fit me uh, until the law. And then I realized, well, I could be a, I could serve in the military and be an attorney. And, and that seemed to fit me best. I had I had really found military service to be honorable because of the example of my grandfathers. Both of my grandfathers served during World War II. Uh, one is a, a Navy sailor and the other as a pilot of P-38s who served missions over Europe, over North Africa and then Europe. And, and I found both of my grandfathers uh, to have set uh, an example of, of what we would call in the Navy, the Navy Corps values, honor, courage, and commitment. They had a sense of loyalty, a sense of commitment, a sense of um, an ethical framework to life by which they lived and, and by which they set um, for me a model. And uh, so I always admired service and I wanted, uh, I wanted to make that a part of my career path. So uh, I wanted to um, be an attorney and use my law degree. And I found that the, the JAG Corps, um, it's J-A-G for Judge Advocate General Corps. The JAG Corps was uh, something that, that was adapted to, to my talents and to my desires to serve. So uh, I uh, made that application. And you know, one of the things that people don't realize is that it's actually, it can be very competitive to get into the JAG Corps. So it's a, there's a process by which you apply and I, um, I, I, I remember that you wrote one of my letters. Uh, John McCain wrote one of my letters of recommendation. I ended up being accepted and and began my service after law school. Um, first, going to San Diego to serve in the in a capacity as a government attorney. So I was a prosecutor and a counselor to uh, commanding officers of of various commands in the region. And uh, and then I served. Uh, for after that, I served that um, in San Diego for a couple of years, and then after that, I served for three years in Japan as a defense attorney. And did you like being a defense attorney? You're good at it. I was good at you know I was I was don't be <laughs> modest here. You were the what ranked defense attorney? Well, I um, you know uh, I was I was named defense attorney of the year for um, the region of uh, the Pacific, so Japan. Uh, Hawaii and basically the broader Asia region um, that put me in competition with about ten defense attorneys for that region, uh, and I was also you know ranked number one out of those ten on two occasions um, during that period. So you, so, were, so you were literally like Lieutenant Caffey from a few <laughs> you know you're just in the Pacific fleet. It's that, that's a dramatic film, but it, people ask me if. <laughs> If the show Jag's very accurate, I say you know actually the show Jag is not very accurate. But then I say the Few Good Men is is approaching some accuracy there, and I found it to be quite accurate. There there were experiences that I would say were analogous to that show. You know, 
at times, you know, I had to confront um, those in authority sometimes with what the law required of them and, and what the Constitution required. And, and I found that the role of the defense counsel um, was very valuable. Uh, you know, one of the things that I always thought growing up and then and then as I was preparing to be an attorney in law school was that I could never be a defense attorney. You know, I was government minded, prosecutorial minded. And, and um, you, you know, I was the type who might have asked the question, like, how do you do it? How do you how are you an defense attorney knowing that, you know, this is the, the popular conception is knowing that your client's guilty. And very often the client is guilty or guilty of something that they've been charged with, but not all the time. And then often they're charged um, perhaps with too much uh, or their rights have been violated in some way. And, and particularly in the military context, but in every context, everyone has a right uh, to a defense. And, and going back to the Boston massacre, you know, they, it's been an honorable profession to serve as a defense attorney because uh, if if the if the rights of the defendant and the accused can be violated, if uh, we you know if 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 we modify the rules in one case, uh, if we can prove someone guilty and put them in prison without beyond a reasonable doubt evidence, then we can do it in your case. Then there are going to be people who are innocent or who are um, who who are suffering from some injustice or some violation of their rights. And, and that could be you, and that could be me. And so as a society, we've decided that, that there should be this role, and it's a constitutionally protected role, for an attorney to have a duty that is singularly for uh, the defense of, of this person. And, and, and ultimately, you know, the law, is, the law is pretty good. We've gone through now hundreds of years of, of this practice in which we have an adversarial system and, the, and justice is is done through that system uh but what i found was uh if i hadn't been there or if another defense attorney hadn't been there uh there would have been manifest injustice in many cases and that's not because of malicious intent most of the time it's just because there's no one looking at the evidence or investigating the case or dealing with the defendant in a way that's mindful of an alternative perspective or a perspective that is is seeking uh, perhaps evidence that conflicts with with the evidence before um, before the court already, but you know that's given by the prosecution. And so, uh, what I found was that the system really does work with an active defense and the role of defense attorney. Uh, is very valuable, and I was I was very honored to have served uh, in that context as well. And you served in the fleet as well. You were out on an aircraft carrier. You were on the Ronald I, Reagan for a while. I, I had gone underway in the Ronald Reagan. I was never ship's company, but I did serve in that capacity. I, I was cotted out onto the carrier uh, to do some legal assistance. The, the ship had to go out faster, I think, than expected. And so some of the paperwork and the, you know, the powers of attorney wills and trusts that the, the sailors needed for this deployment had not been prepared at the time. And this was years ago. Uh, and so um, they asked me to assist with that. And so I was caught it out onto the carrier and, uh, and did some briefings and helped some sailors who needed those documents prepared. I, at the time, I was running a legal assistance office on Coronado, which was not a, a bad job. It was essentially an office for sailors to come in and, and um, deal with legal needs that uh, that involved their relationship 
with the community, such as you know landlord tenant issues, uh, wills and trust issues, and powers of attorney. So I was I was situated out there on Coronado in a way where I could easily go out with the the carrier because the Reagan was was coming in and out of port in San Diego. And you you talked about the fact that part of your job is to say to a superior officer on occasion, um, including high ranking ones, that's illegal, sir. Right? The Constitution doesn't doesn't permit that. Talk about the role of a military lawyer advising a military commander uh, about American law, about the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and about the U.S. Constitution and the obligations uh, of that officer to those to those to those things. Yeah, you know the the military commander is tasked with fulfilling a mission, which means he needs his he or she needs his and her, his sailors or her sailors to be fully prepared to complete whatever mission that that the president gives them or their commanders uh, give them. And, and that requires people to be ready, requires them to be squared away, requires them to have completed everything that they need to complete to be ready and the trainings and um, to have their uniform ready and uh, and to be to be where they need to be on time. And, and in that process, um, there are going to be those who who fail in some way, um, whether whether it's due to their own fault or, or to some other fault. And so so often what happens is there's a, a tension or a conflict between you know the needs of the mission in a macro perspective and the rights of a sailor if there is suspicion that they've perhaps broken the law in some way or um, or failed in some way to um, contribute as they've been tasked to complete the mission. And in that process, um, they they I mean they're they're a sailor who has raised their hand, they've sworn an oath, they've said, I am going to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. But that same Constitution gives them all of the rights that you and I have as well. Now some of those rights uh, have to be limited in, in uh, the military uh, capacity due to the exigencies of, of military service. Uh, but Congress and and the Supreme Court and the, the courts um, tasked with, with supporting um, the military, um, such as the Navy Marine Corps Appeals Court, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, they've set the rules. And so uh, just as we asked that sailor or that soldier to follow the rules, uh, in completing the mission, we also ask that commander, or, or those tasked with uh, with administering that mission, with following those same rules, including the constitutional rules. And and so the role of a staff judge advocate is going to be advising the commander and what his legal obligations are in that context. Now that I've described the criminal um, sense of this, where you have a, a sailor who's suspected of of having violated perhaps. Um, a criminal, uh, a criminal code, or or some sort of regulation. But then there's also um, there, there's also ethical requirements. You know whether or not um, whether or not they're able to give that speech or say this or 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 take that gift or or how they're supposed to interact with a foreign uh, a foreign national. And then there are uh, environmental regulations, laws of. Uh, rules of engagement, and and so the the statute, staff judge advocate, which is uh, a capacity I served in for a bit, um, is advising the commander on all of those legal obligations. And and generally speaking, they want to follow them. 
but they also understand that there can be uh, a variance in 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 how they're going to be scrutinized. And so so sometimes there can be pressure to get to yes, and and sometimes that pressure is responded with um, with you know you know a firm position from the attorneys, and they're able to to understand you know is is this a a clear requirement or is this a requirement that requires their own judgment or their own decision on, on what types of, of risks they want to take. Um, in the criminal context, um, that's where, um, you know, potentially the, the, the person is is a criminal. And so they they need to be dealt with for, for criminal activity um, through, you know, the, the constitutional due process uh, that they're afforded. And so um, it, it's the job of either that staff judge advocate or that defense attorney to to sometimes speak um, legal truth to the power that is is obviously motivated at least most of the time by by the goodwill of 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 completing the mission. You used the phrase legal truth, um, mm -hmm. but you did not stay in that vocation. You found another one in search mm -hmm. of a different type of truth. And I can genuinely say, um, I'm not often surprised, but I was surprised when you called me, you were about to put on lieutenant commander in the Navy, you had a thriving political career. And tell me about the decision you you made next that brings you to Rome and where you wind up in Rome. Yeah, and and just to clarify, I was I was going up for it. So I would have been uh, considered for promotion that following year. Uh, and and so you that said you were like lieutenant. Was... You were like the lieutenant Happy of the Pacific Fleet. So <laughs> exactly, you're on the you're on the edge of being promoted to lieutenant commander, likely. And you do what with your life? Yeah. Well, you know. So um, to roll back the, the the clock here a little bit on that story, I had uh, I had been raised sort of as a generic Protestant uh, style Christian. Uh, growing up, I had been originally baptized a Catholic, but I was raised essentially as a, a generic Protestant Christian, uh, and that was my general framework. Um, but I went through a, a conversion process in law school, uh, and and so in the middle of law school, while I was actually still preparing to be a, a Navy judge advocate, I had um, I had discovered Catholicism and Catholic Christianity, and and basically fell in love with it. So I I entered the Catholic Church anew in. 2011, 2012. And so when I entered active duty, I did so as a as a new Catholic, a practicing Catholic and someone who um, was very intentional about uh, living out that that faith. And so as I was um, practicing as attorney in the Navy, I, I still hadn't come to to the conclusion that I, would, I was going to become a priest. In fact, I was I was still seriously dating. I, I got engaged at one point. Uh, to to another Navy JAG and 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 she and I had a, a lengthy relationship and then um, we we realized we shouldn't get married so we we went separate ways uh, but then at some point in this process I started to seriously consider priesthood and um, you know one of the factors that went into that I um, I viewed what I was doing as as a real service, you know, I was I was serving as an attorney. I was serving the military, um, but I felt a sense that I had a call to um, one of the more underlying truths, so to speak, or or um, um, cultural foundations that I I was also being um, called to serve. And so, 
you know, in, in Aristotelian or Aristotle's, um, Aristotle's philosophy, he talks about the various, um, various vocations, various professions, and, and, you know, politics is incredibly important to him. I mean, he talks at length, Plato talks at length about politics, Aristotle talks at length about politics. And, and, you know, he, he describes it as a means to an end. You know, if politics becomes our God, um, it's it, it we've we've disordered something. Politics is a means to obtaining some sort of other reality. And that's basically um, a a peaceful, ordered, just society in which human beings are free to be who who they uh, who they really are and to live out their identity and their their um, their pursuit of happiness, as we'd call it constitutionally in, in, the, in the Declaration of Independence. And so uh, in that environment, I, what I saw was I, I think God was calling me to contribute something to one of the underlying foundations that then contributes positively to all of those other paths in life that contribute to the end, which is um, the, the um, success and flourishing of the human person. And, and one of those things, which I find and, and um, continue to find to be foundational, is faith. That uh, my own faith experience allowed me to contribute in a special way. At least this is what I, I felt called to at the time. And so I, I considered Catholic priesthood. And as soon as I opened that door, um, despite all of my uh, initial reluctance, you know, I was I was reluctant because, as everyone knows, or Catholic priests are celibate. You know, that wasn't actually something I had planned for my life. Uh, you know, another thing is that it's a it's a total vocation. It's not a job. So I, I know that a, a Catholic priest never ceases to be, you know, father. So I'm Father Brad, and I, I could take this off and put on a polo shirt, go out, but I'm still a, a priest. Uh, and so it's a it, it involves a total commitment. And I was unsure of it, but I I as soon as I opened that door, I saw the ways in which uh, that God was was pointing me in this direction. I saw the ways in which you know I had clients who I could help with their legal problems. I you know I their their rights were violated. I could represent them in court, um, and we could reach a resolution. But I felt a you know a heart tug to also help with you know potentially their spiritual problems. You know they, they didn't end up in a criminal defense setting out of nowhere. Um, for the most part, they they had a full backstory. They had uh, the day after, you know, the day after they're acquitted, or the day after they they emerge from from prison. Uh, there's the rest of their life, and I I wanted to uh, contribute in a way that um, would would further those ends or those objectives. Um, and so I gave seminary a chance in 2017. I left active duty to start seminary. I began in San Diego for one year so that I could complete what was a philosophy requirement. I had to essentially major in philosophy and, and take all the credits that were necessary for philosophy major to, to go on to my seminary in Rome. So I did that in one year and, and then I moved to Rome. And, and during that, that five year period preceding my ordination to the priesthood, I, I found that this was indeed the vocation to which I, I felt called by God and, and to which I wanted to say yes. And, and I had to get to a point where I, my yes wasn't just a, a yes to, you know, in a subservient way, uh, follow God's, God's will. I didn't, I didn't think that's how he wanted me to respond. It had to be a yes that, that came from my own desire and free choice uh, to be a priest. And, and I got to that point and, and 
Uh, I was ordained a deacon in 2021 in St. Peter's Basilica. In, and then I was ordained a, a Catholic priest last June 2022 and in San Diego by uh, now Cardinal McElroy. I wonder if you might share the story, because I, I think it is a beautiful story uh, on many levels, as well as being very sad. But um, the story of your father and your, mm -hmm. and your first mass um, mm -hmm. as you were um, becoming a priest. Um, your father had a heart attack. Yeah, about uh, about twelve days before my ordination, he had a heart attack, and so I was in. I was actually still in Rome at the time, getting ready to to fly back for the ordination, and and he was in Ohio, and my ordination was going to be in San Diego, so I dropped everything and flew to Ohio, where he was hospitalized, and he had gone through a um, surgery and and came out of the surgery. The doctors were actually very surprised uh, because apparently when he had gone through the surgery, uh, they didn't know if he was going to make it. He ended up making it through the surgery. And then his recovery was actually proceeding incredibly quickly. And so by the time I got there, uh, which was you know a day and a half later, because that's about the time it took for me to, to get a flight and, and fly across the world, the doctors were very pleased with how things were going. And they were talking about, uh, they were talking about discharge dates. And, and he continued to recover and gain strength. And, and so he was fully prepared to watch my ordination on the live stream. And I returned to San Diego to be ordained. And then I was going to return to him uh, when I, uh, you know, the day after uh, my first mass and, and return to him to see him in the hospital, or if he had been discharged at that point, to see him in recovery. Um, a few hours before my ordination began, I uh, found out he had gone into cardiac arrest, which had surprised everyone. Uh, and then 15 minutes before the ordination, I was told that um, it, it basically was not, he was not going to come through, that they, they, they basically wanted to know, should they keep trying to resuscitate? And so um, they did keep trying to resuscitate, and, and, but I proceeded into my ordination knowing my father was dying. And so I was ordained a priest in the midst of my my father's uh, my father's death. And uh, it is something that is seared into my memory. You know, a lot of people talk about their ordinations as going very quickly. They don't really remember much of it because so much is going on. There are, you know, thousands of people there, a lot of uh, activity. I remember every detail of my ordination. And I remember very, very vividly experiencing my father's um, my father's dying during it. And you know what what's what is uh, very I guess spiritually um, very uh, central to this experience for me is this idea that he was my natural father. He brought me into the world as my father, and I was in the process of becoming. Uh, a spiritual father to a community, and it was as if he had he had just made it to pass the baton to me. That you know, it, though I was becoming a celibate priest um, who wouldn't be a natural father to anyone, he made it across the finish line to the beginning of my life as a spiritual father. And so that um, that experience, I think, fundamentally. Um, fortified the way I view 
the way I view my priesthood, that I am carrying on a fatherhood in a very special way. And it's a fatherhood that I can uh, it, I can uh, experience and offer in a, uh, a sense um, that I also received from my own father. You know, my own father was, uh, was my biggest cheerleader. You know, he was such a supportive man. I mean, he was probably the most excited person on planet earth for my ordination of the priesthood, probably more excited than me. And, and yet he was barely able to get there uh, in a living sense. And he was not, I, he wasn't conscious. They played the ordination to him in his hospital room while he was unconscious. And, and so who knows what he heard, um, but he, he lasted a few hours later. And so I, I received the news at you know, 4.30 a.m. Pacific Coast time. Uh, and, and then my first mass began at, I think it was nine or 9.30, but I, I told my family who had arrived for my first mass that he had passed away they then went in to be seated and then i proceeded in as father brett and did your first mass and did my first mass and and preached and preached the homily the sermon and you will now be leaving rome after five mm -hmm. months you speak italian fluently um Returning to San Diego, will, you will be a parish priest for a period of time. And then the plan is that you will return to active military service as a chaplain in the United States Navy. And when last we talked, your ambition was to deploy with Marines. That's right. So I will be uh, I will be in San Diego for three years as a parish priest. And and I, I received that assignment from from the cardinal. So. I'll be in North County, San Diego. I'll be a parish priest there for three years. It's a, a big, live, you know, lively parish with thousands of families. And then I will, at the end of that three-year period, I will be loaned by the Diocese of San Diego to the Archdiocese for the Military Services, who will send me to the military as a Catholic priest and Navy chaplain in the Naval Service. So that will make me, again, an officer, a, a, a chaplain in the Navy, uh, commissions, swears an oath to the Constitution, and then puts on the uniform and serves as a, a naval officer. And uh, given the the lack of supply of priests, so there are there are hundreds and hundreds of chaplains in in the U.S. Navy. There are about forty seven or forty eight Catholic priests among those chaplains, and so we're a little underrepresented. And, and we have. Um, something like 25% to a third of the Navy population, depending on where we are and, and which part of the service. And, and so because of that shortage, I will primarily be serving overseas at sea and with the Marines for my entire Navy career. At least that's my expectation. I mean, there could be some service, you know, through, through Washington, D.C., but for the most part, I'll be serving in a deployed status um, and, and my ambition is, uh, is to do that. I want to be with the fleet and I want to be with the Marines, uh, who are, you know, in the most need because the, the, the deployed fleet, the U S Marine Corps are out in a setting where they, they can't go home. They, they have, um, they go to a military base or to a bunk, um, in a, or we call it a rack in, in a metal vessel. And, and so they, 
they obviously have recourse, um, and it's a it's a very good service to have recourse to chaplaincy, to have recourse to a member of their religious faith. And so the chaplaincy includes rabbis, ministers, priests. It includes uh, you know women ministers, uh, male ministers, uh, and and so um, as a Catholic priest, I'll be able to provide Catholic services. And you know one of the things that people don't understand when a military member joins, when he swears the oath, when he commissions or enlists, um, or she, um, when, when he or she joins, their spouse, their kids come with them. And so uh, that sailor overseas in Japan, for instance, has brought their family with them. And, and they together are in service to the country. Uh, they are go, the kids are going often to a defense department school. They go to, their dog goes to the veterinarian on the military base. And uh, the Japanese priest down the, street, down the street, if he exists, uh, doesn't speak English. Um, the minister, he or she down the street does not speak English. And so the chaplaincy allows a service member to exercise their their right to religious liberty, their right to free exercise of religion in the military service. They don't have to hang that up or put that on the shelf for the duration of their military service. They they have access to a chaplain um, uh, either of their own religious affiliation or of, uh, of someone who can still support them in a spiritual and counseling sense while they're overseas. And so I will be providing uh, Catholic support to Catholics, so Catholic religious services to Catholics and their families, and then um, general counseling services and chaplaincy services to every member of every faith group. We've spent a long time talking about your incredibly fascinating career path, your your service, your vocation as a priest, but I, I want to ask you, uh, as an American who's lived abroad for five years, um, how do you see the country from abroad? What does it What does it look like to you? I was uh, struck recently, Senator from Connecticut, uh, Christopher Murphy, uh, was co-author of a piece, and I, I'm going to have uh, his 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 uh, his writing partner on the on the podcast. But really talked about that there's a spiritual crisis in the country. Um, and he specifically framed it that there's a spiritual crisis on the on the left and that um, from that position, we need to rehabilitate, reinvigorate from a values perspective, uh, all manner of different notions about how the society about how the society functions. But when you look at the country from abroad, when you look at its politics, do you sense a spiritual crisis in, a, in America? How do you contextualize the the reality of American life through the prism of what, what is that, that at any moment, uniquely here, someone somewhere can jump out of a bush with an automatic weapon um, and mow down 60 people um, at a school, at a movie theater, at a country music concert? Um, there's certainly been a collapse of faith in American democracy. Um, by the political party that we were both affiliated with. 
uh, almost lock, stock, and, and barrel. And so I wonder how you think about the collapse of faith at a, at a secular level in our institutions, in our systems, um, and, and what the remedy for it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you bring up a lot of good, um, there are a lot of questions embedded in that question. And if there were an easy answer, I think it, it, we'd, we'd have a quick resolution. Um, one thing, and I, you know, I, what really liberates me to speak um, from the, the macro perspective on this, I think is, you know, you and I were once affiliated with the Republican party as a priest, I'm not really affiliated uh, with, with any partisan uh, grouping. So I'm able to take a step back and sort of look at the global, the global picture here. And I have been overseas for eight of the last nine years between the military service and then my, um, my seminary and priesthood in Rome. And so um, when I go back, I see the ways in which things are the same and the ways in which things have changed. And, and so I experienced, you know, the last few presidential elections overseas and, and have seen how things have shifted. You know, one of the things that I would say across the board to the gun issue, um, I've lived in Japan, I've lived in Italy, I've traveled, I was just in, in, in Austria last week, I've traveled all over Europe um, and other parts of the world. Uh, I am never concerned uh, about my physical safety when I'm walking the streets of Rome, even at one in the morning. I was never concerned about my physical safety when I was walk, walking the streets of Tokyo. Uh, and that's not to say that crime doesn't exist or it, there is no incidence of it, but uh, there is much, much less violent crime in the rest of the world, at least the rest of the, uh, the developed world. And, and that is striking, especially when I return home and I'm getting the local news again. You know, I can keep I can keep up pretty easily with the the national news, but I can get the get the local news when I get back, and and I see what's going on. And and what I have found is we have we've had an increase in dramatic violence uh, and an increase of an inability to have a conversation about it. So we. Um, when I speak to my friends, my family members, my neighbors about what's going on, I find that people are much more invested in a perspective. And that investment has made the conversation more heated and much more difficult. And so, you know, I've, I've had a lot of time to reflect on, you know, what might be the cause of, of these conflicts and and I think if you if you look at the the development of the country over time, you know we we as a, Americans have had very high ideals and have really failed at various times uh, to actually live them out. And you know you you look back in the history of the United States, uh, and and we describe people every man as inherently equal, and then we also had slavery, which was um, you know catastrophically uh, in contradiction with our ideals. So, but we, um, the point I'm making on that is there were times when we had a general consensus about what is good, what are our values. And then from that consensus, 
um, we were able to have arguments and debates. Um, and when we realized that we could no longer have a discussion, um, there was a civil war. And an approach emerged out of that civil war that got us to where we are today that fully recognizes, at least in law, and it's still waiting to be implemented, but the, the fully recognizes, at least in the a principled sense, the inherent equal dignity of every human being. And where we are today, I think, is that we have a fundamental disagreement not over, not only over what our values are, but whether or not we can have values, or what you, you know, what is the approach of how we're going to even address these issues. Uh, one of the things that was striking several years ago, I, early on in his papacy, Pope Francis came to the United States. This was back when John Boehner was speaker, and he was uh, invited to the Congress to address. Uh, the U.S. Congress and Pope Francis gave a speech that was that was well received, but he mentioned I just I recently reviewed that speech. He mentioned six times the common good as the end of politics. That if you if you are really doing politics right, what you're doing is you're seeking the common good. And I don't think we use that terminology in our political discourse anymore. And the, the reasons for that is. I, you know, I think when some people hear the common good, they think immediately of Marxist socialism, which it's not. And when others hear the common good, they think immediately of a of uh, the imposition, perhaps of, of another person's moral viewpoints or values on on someone else. Um, really, the common good is the recognition of a shared benefit and and um, communion of people that we all benefit from and therefore we we contribute to. So for instance, uh, the education of the population is in service of the common good. Not only am I benefited from the fact that I'm educated, but the society is benefited from the fact that I'm educated and others are educated because we all can make better contributing um, members of society when we are educated. And so we recognize that we should make sacrifices, you know, in, in the sense that we're we're taxed for it, we contribute to it so that we can ensure all Americans have at least a baseline education. Well, that if that shared value is is the baseline from which and the foundation from which then we have the freedom to make choices in. I can have the freedom to choose where I go to school, or my parents can have the freedom to choose where they send me to school. But what my parents really can't do is choose to keep me uh, an illiterate, uneducated person who can't even do basic arithmetic for the rest of my life. We have decided as a society that that's basically not, not acceptable. Well, that limits freedom in some ways. So there is an absolute freedom, so to speak, a fundamental right of a parent to to educate or a fundamental right of a parent to raise their child, but not to so harm their child that they leave them entirely uneducated for the rest of their life. At least that's the value system that we all share. And so that's that's something that at least most Americans, I think, would say, hey, we all can agree on that, that that is a good and that we should all make sacrifices and contribute to that good. But that breaks down now, I think, across the board. I think that when you're talking about gun rights, 
we we are having an argument in which we don't have those shared values. You have, on the one hand, some who would uh, who would view that gun rights are absolute and only from the individual perspective that I, as an individual, have a right to bear arms, and then and then others um, who who might be very much opposed to the ownership of guns. And there are certainly people in between, but but when you're not coming to it from the perspective of what is contributing best to the benefit of society, in what ways does gun ownership contribute or harm that, that good of society, the peace of society, the justice in society, et cetera. And, and from that baseline, from that shared value, how are we going to assess the freedom from which you can make choices in that shared value. Because we don't approach it from the, the perspective of the common good, we, we can no longer have a real dialogue. And so it is a zero sum game of whether or not a state is going to be regulating or not regulating guns um, because, because of what I would call a, a kind of encampment or a, a tribalism on the issue. And, and so uh, certainly as a priest, um, I have I have a duty to assist people to use their their um, their value system, use the way in which the faith contributes and informs that value system uh, to to then help shape an approach to the common good that doesn't view freedom solely through the lens of individualism. You know, where where whereas I would agree with. The individual rights and the civil rights, but views the exercise of those individual rights and those civil rights within this broader communitarian perspective, in which I'm also assessing how is this how is this good for society? In what way is this contributing to the community? And from that shared agreement, we then can uh, appropriate appropriate rights, which are inherent to the human person, but cannot be absolute if we're going to have a peaceful, just place to live. What, what's the way to think about this issue? We mm -hmm. really have a immigration crisis. I think that everyone who looks at the issue fairly and honestly would agree on that. Um, we have a mass of human misery uh, fleeing for their lives from despotic regimes south of the border, um, from unbelievable levels of violence, and they are trying to make it uh, in safety to the United States. Um, not everybody will be, be let in. People that are trying to get in and do get across, George W. Bush, who we worked for, once tried to conceptualize and contextualize this as, yes, it is a breaking of a law, but for the father or the mother who walks across a desert to provide a better life for their children, it's also an act of love, doing everything they can to, to keep those to keep those children, those children safe. Um, when you look at what's happening, whether it's Governor Abbott um, dropping people off on Christmas Eve in front of the vice president's residence off of a bus, disoriented, cold, and alone, 
um, whether it's Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida flying bewildered people into the state of California and dropping them off. And Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has has insinuated, um, and I think he may be correct, um, that this meets the statutory definition of kidnapping, um, which raises a legal question, right? What happens if one state issues a warrant for the arrest of another state's governor, right? So this spirals to a to a dark place very, very quickly. But, you know, long preamble, but there is a politics of unmistakable cruelty that is most vividly and demonstrably supported by people who call themselves evangelical Christians. Um, any basic conception of, of the meaning of Christianity, who Christ was, is obviously antithetical to this. How do you explain that, one? Two, how does that make your job as a spiritual father more difficult because it certainly triggers my cynical gene on 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 religion and pulls like a tractor beam away from some of those 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 broader truths. I just I have a I have a, and I know I'm not alone in in that in that reaction, which which and I don't know why. Right? You turn away from God. You turn away because of man's frailties mm -hmm. and fallibility. But but how do you think about that? People who take away from this moment of time, well, the religious people are with this guy and what they're supporting is this cruelty. And, and therefore now I'm against religion and it colors their faith. Okay, so I, what, I would, what I would begin with here is the story of the Good Samaritan. So the guy, there's a guy who is beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road in the desert as he's transiting from one town to another. And uh, a, I, I believe it's a, a Levitical priest, so a priest of the temple in, in ancient Jerusalem walks by, looks at him, and, and passes. Another, another uh, religious person walks by and passes. And so this is Jesus's critique of of uh, hypocritical religious leadership. So, you know, Jesus is a Jew himself. He's a rabbi himself. And he's criticizing the tendency often of religious leadership to become cynical or hypocritical. Uh, and then a Samaritan comes by and the Samaritan is the one who cleans the wounds and takes the guy to, uh, to a place where he can stay and recover and pays for it all. Well, it just so happens to be that a Samaritan's a foreigner, and the foreigner's someone that, that this man who was left for dead on the side of the road would have not had normal interactions with. He would have not been engaged in any type of commerce or interaction with the, the Samaritan, and it's the Samaritan who, who ends, up, uh, ends up helping the man recover. Well, uh, the point of that story is to reorient the perspective of the listener towards the other the foreigner, and to show uh, the fundamental equality and dignity between each human being, and, and to take us out of our, our comfort zones, our own walls of protection, uh, 
by which we have come up with their other, and so I am not concerned for them. And, and so it is to get us out of that comfort and recognize the fundamental shared dignity between each person and the shared responsibility that we have towards our neighbor, neighbor even, if they're a, even if they're a foreigner, a stranger, or someone who we wouldn't regard highly in our social context. And, and immigration uh, today is probably, on a macro perspective, a broader experience of, of that story. And so it is, it, I would agree with you, and Pope Francis uh, would agree with you, it is impossible to be a Christian and not care about the plight of those who are uh, escaping very dangerous, very violent situations and, and requesting asylum or immigrating this country for, for various reasons, even if the reason is just to uh, find a better uh, opportunity for their family. And so um, in that context, multiple things can be true at the same time. We should have, as a country, a system by which we know who enters the country and a system by which we can, we can secure the country. And at that same time, what can also be true is that we have a duty as the wealthiest nation in the world and as a society to look towards that immigration demand with an eye towards not simply the number or the fact that they are outsiders, but looks at them uh, with, with a perspective of the human dignity which they have as, as human beings. And so the kid who is being separated from a family member, well, you know, if you think through it with human eyes, that is, I mean, that's, that's heinous. To, to separate children from family members solely for punitive reasons um, it, or to discourage, to discourage migration because that child is a human being. That child is going to be traumatized for the rest of his life or her life. And, and so in approaching this issue, uh, particularly from a spiritual perspective, particularly from a Catholic perspective, of which you know so strongly does does Jesus actually demand um, approaching the foreigner through the lens of viewing uh, the foreigner uh, with with eyes towards their humanity because because everyone in our system has been created in the image of God or or even the Book of Amos you know to you know to use a, a Jewish example or a, a book from the Hebrew Bible which um, constantly reminds the those who have means that they have a shared responsibility of caring for those who are impoverished or destitute etc and and people will be judged in the in the grand scheme of things according to the book of amos according to jesus by how they approached those who were most in need and that approach it does not only involve private charity. You know, it includes private charity. And Americans actually are some of the most generous people in the world when it comes to private charity. But it also involves the ordering of society. And, and so because we are capable of reviewing asylum cases and because we're capable of, of absorbing immigration in a time when there is significant disparity between living conditions in the world, uh, we have a duty if we if we're a society based on on values, a society based on uh, the Christian perspective of how the world is ordered, we have we have not just the opportunity but a duty to approach this issue 
uh, through the lens of looking through, looking past the differences and looking towards uh, people as people. And, and that's going to require us, you know, some cost. Uh, but it, it ultimately contributes to the community because, you know, at the end of the day, um, for the most part, it, with the exception of the Native Americans, everyone else was was an immigrant at some point and benefited from from a community that welcomed them and 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 allowed them to become to become Americans in the full sense. And and that wasn't done perfectly. And we have had a history of of. Um, you know, issues, especially in where, where there was a lot of immigration, um, where the society took a while to, to accept uh, or to tolerate differences. And, you know, it, a great example of that is, is discrimination against, against Catholics in parts of the country in the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century, um, against Jews in other, in other contexts in the country. And so we've gotten through those pains, but now we have found another way in which I think we have failed to recognize a shared value system by which we can approach this issue and and therefore and have these conversations. And um, you know, as a Catholic priest, as someone who has studied um, the the political philosophies of Augustine, of Thomas Aquinas, uh, of Maimonides, uh, who was a Jewish political philosopher and who contributed to this conversation, we've come we've we've been actually better at approaching these issues before. Uh, and so um, part of what we'll need, I think, and this is this is something that's necessary in order to emerge from this, we are going to have to uh, resource and look at where have we been? What is our history? What were those shared values? What were the principles that we can we can say actually uh, society had and should have again, because we have accepted immigrants in much more welcoming ways. And we had shared values that was was much more, you know, that involved a much greater openness. Um, and it doesn't mean we should have, you know, quote unquote, open borders or just let everybody in without any type of discernment or or consideration or that we should allow uh, criminals to enter the country. Of course not. And um, but to come up with a system that's going to work and be much more humane we are going to actually have to come up, we are going to have to go down deeper than just winning the next election or getting a party to, to, um, to vanquish an issue and uh, because that's not going to ultimately resolve the problem. We are going to have to fundamentally return to our most basic principles and decide that we agree that this person, this family, um, these people are fundamentally human that they share the same aspirations that we do, that they are uh, deserving of the same fundamental rights that we have. And in and because of that, um, I owe something because I have everything in as American. I have all of the opportunities um, that they are might be seeking and that with a shared cost that everyone can perhaps contribute to, the common good benefits because now I have additional contributors. I have people who've come here to also um, become a part of the society. And that that diversity, uh, when it's done correctly, that diversity can only benefit us. I've been a longtime believer that really the fundamental issue um, of our era is the collapse of trust uh, between Americans and institutions. Um, 
the military is important to understand as an institution because it is the rarest example of an institution that lost trust during the Vietnam War and then recovered trust and became one of the most trusted institutions in the, in the country. The Catholic Church as an institution um, has lost trust and broken faith with millions of Catholics, including the one um, who left the church that you're that you're that you're talking to. How do you think about that from the perspective of wearing the collar now, the impression that many have of a Catholic priest as being a threat potentially to their children? Um, what do you say? to to those people who have alternately feel betrayed by the church, brokenhearted by the church, that their bonds of trust with the church were broken, as somebody who I genuinely know to be one of the most honorable people I've ever I've ever met, uh, who who will be a wonderful priest. What what do you say? to them at an individual level before I tee up Pope Francis's legacy for you? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is uh, I'm, in in one sense, I'm with you. I I am someone who has at various times as, as these events have confronted me, um, been disheartened and, um, and, and felt betrayed by the institutional failures of the church. You know, I went to Boston College uh, and I started in 2003 in Boston College. So um, that was right after the peak of the sex abuse crisis in Boston. And as, as I stated at the, at the beginning of this, I, I, was not a pra I was not a Catholic, I was not a practicing Catholic in, in, uh, in the sense of, of someone who considered myself a Catholic. I didn't identify as a Catholic. Uh, and I was at Boston College, which is a Catholic university and a Genesee university. And, and I'm there in the wake of the sex abuse crisis, where, you know, while it's still hot. Well, Cardinal Law, who, you know, was, um, was uh, you know, essentially had to resign from the office of, of Archbishop of Boston because of, of his institutional failures. And uh, I found that the crisis was enough um, at that time for me, not even to consider becoming Catholic. So I was at Boston College. It was an incredibly, um, you know, incredibly intellectual environment, uh, in part because of the contributions of Jesuit priests uh, and, 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 and certainly the contributions of many Catholics um, who, who contribute to that, that university. But I didn't even consider becoming a Catholic while I was there. And it was because of the sex abuse crisis. And, you know, I, I, I thought through it. I thought, this is so discrediting, I don't have to consider it. Um, it what I think I uh, discovered, you know, so over time as that, as that um, developed in my, in my own life, um, for, first of all, I was, um, I was able to contextualize it, okay? So it is a spectacular institutional failure of the Catholic Church for this to have happened um, because what it did was it, it it was another example of what um, tends to be the institutional impulse, whether you're USC, Penn State, uh, the Boy Scouts, 
the Catholic Church, uh, pub some public schools, uh, the, a scandal or a sex abuse crisis comes along and the institutional impulse immediately is to cover it up. Well, the, the problem, um, and that's criminal, and that's criminal, and it's it's criminal in all these cases, but the problem with that is in the Catholic setting, the Catholic Church is claiming a type of moral and spiritual authority. And so what makes it additionally, uh, you know, heinous is, is that people in a position of spiritual authority uh, were letting us down, you and me, both as Catholics at the time, uh, or you as a Catholic and then me as a Catholic later, we're letting us down. Um, and so ultimately, when I came, when I felt called to the Catholic faith and when I felt called to become a priest, what was fundamentally calling me was the faith. So, so Jesus, who, who is, is the, both the origin and the, the leader of the, of the faith, um, who was raised from the dead uh, in the Catholic sense of things. Uh, it, and, and so in my belief that he's raised from the dead and that he is, is ultimately in charge of the Catholic faith and of, of my own Christian um, spirituality, I found him to be true. I found the Beatitudes to be true. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. I found his teaching to be true. And I found the saints, such as Mother Teresa, uh, for instance, to be truly living out the Catholic faith. And, and, and then I found that there are institutional actors who have let us down either from a, from a moral failure or from a general incompetence. And my call to the priesthood uh, is fully acknowledges that, fully acknowledges that it is going to be at my own, in some, in some settings, at my own personal cost, that someone's going to see the caller and, and they're going to think about what they saw in the news several years ago or, or decades ago. Um, and, and that I am being asked to be a priest in that setting with that sacrifice. And that's okay for me because I have come to know the fundamental faith in my own life as being something living and true. And so my own contribution is to uh, participate in the, the truth of the faith and in the broader sense to join with others who are engaged in the effort to reform that which needs to be reformed. You know, I. Um, when I first got to Rome, as I had transitioned in seminary from uh, San Diego to Rome, I went to Assisi to learn Italian. And I was in an a, uh, Italian program in Assisi, Italy, where Francis of Assisi uh, was born in the 12th century. And at the, the end of the 12th, beginning of the 13th century, Francis of Assisi is sitting beneath the San Damiano cross. And that cross, according to the story, speaks to him and it's, it's Christ speaking to him saying, Francis, rebuild my church. And so Francis hears that and thinks, rebuild the church building. And so he, you can still actually visit this, this stone chapel that he by hand uh, erected and fixed. And so now he's got this nice chapel built and he goes back to the cross and the cross again says to him, rebuild my church. And what Francis realizes in that is that he's being asked to rebuild the spiritual church, not the physical church building, but the spiritual church that constitutes all of the members of the church 
in, in, um, in the world at that time. And so he becomes a type of radical, um, you know, spiritual figure. Someone, you know, we would experience as kind of crazy, kind of out there. He, he gives up all of his belongings. He even takes his clothes off to make the point, and he stands naked before the bishop talking about his spiritual calling. And ultimately, he wears this brown potato sack, which uh, becomes... Uh, the the so you know the habit or the uniform of what is the Franciscan order today that that stems from his uh, that stems from his uh, religious uh, grouping, but he in a radical way represented the poverty of Christ and the poverty of Christianity in order to correct and reform the corruption in in the church at that time and that you know at the turn of the 13th century um and that probably had the effect of reforming and saving the church and making the church a renewed uh you know witness to what was most fundamental and and not whatever it was doing at the time you know which was related to to serious levels of corruption then and so Institutionally, in a worldly sense, there are going to be worldly actors. There, we have human beings who are sinful, who behave badly, and who are going to occupy the institution. And then there is the fundamental faith that is going to be constantly calling people to reform, to rebuild the church. And uh, in many senses, the saints such as St. Francis of Assisi and, and Mother Teresa um, are in a particularly radical way witnessing to what is most fundamental to the faith so that that reform process can always be carried out and affected in, in the life of the church. And that's always going to be a struggle. Um, I was sitting beneath that San, Diamo, San Damiano crucifix um, thinking about that message while the McCarrick stories were breaking in the news in the summer of 2018. And so I had on the outside of that church, the McCarrick news in which we found out that Cardinal McCarrick had been an abuser himself and had um, and had done so while he was also uh, overseeing a process by which the church had been responding to the abuse crisis. And the church had come up with a charter uh, called the Dallas Charter on, on you know dealing with how to to deal with all of these these cases and to make sure it never happens again. And then it was found out that someone in you know in a very uh, integral way was involved in the process and he himself he himself had been an abuser and that was incredibly scandalous. And so beneath that crucifix, you know, I prayed that I would be given the help to contribute. You know, not that I'm going to be a Saint Francis of Assisi, but that I will contribute in the way that I can in the way that I've been called to again uh, participate in the rebuilding and the reform of the church so that the most effective witness of what, what God is trying to do in the church and what I experience as a living spiritual dimension to the church can be effective in the world and not, and, and not covered by um, you know, the, the, the institutional problems that have this, this persistence. And so um, there is always going to be that reality. And, and then he, I am hopefully, and I, I, will, I ask for people's prayers that I'm always someone who is contributing to the betterment and the reform 
of the witness of the church and and the reform of the institution for that purpose. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you about is Pope Francis's legacy. Uh, he has been Pope long enough uh, for it to be firmly established. What What is it? You know, Pope Francis, I, I think he's one of the most misunderstood popes. Uh, he has caused a lot of, um, you, you know, a lot of speculation, a lot of opinion. You know, people wondered, is he coming in to change everything? And, you know, now uh, 10 years on, um, some things have changed and some things haven't. Um, I think the best way to understand him is that he is not someone you can categorize on left and right. And we tend to do that because we have these political minds that try to categorize is this is that, you know, an approach as, as left or right, um, liberal or conservative. And I, I think um, one of the reasons why it's, it's hard to understand him is he's neither. He's someone who I would say is, has a theology, a radical theology. And I use the word radical in the root sense. You know, like a radish is a root. So it it means that he's getting back to a fundamental core, and that fundamental core is going to be simultaneously challenging to all individuals because it's a Christian core, and he's trying to witness to that uh, as Pope, so someone responsible with governing the church, but witnessing to the core, which is the life of Christ, the life of Christ, which is one of one of poverty. And so, you know, even though he didn't have to do this, um, he's he's living in a small room in a Vatican hotel for, you know, it's a hotel for Vatican guests, but he's living there and not living in the papal apartment. The papal apartment, something, you know, that was considered larger and, and somewhere he didn't want to live. And and so he's he's living in a way that is witnessing to a poverty because he's trying to help us reflect on a detachment from simply the pursuit of material uh, wealth. And, and, and you can apply that across the board. And so when, when, um, you know, when he's talking about women and, and their involvement in, in the leadership of the church, um, you know, on the one hand, he hasn't, he hasn't changed the teaching on women priests. So it's still only men can be priests. But at the same time, he's placing women in leadership positions in the Vatican that they've never held before, um, positions in which they have responsibility over clergy in other departments of the Vatican. And so why is he doing that? Because he's 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 getting to um, a, a radical core of the teaching of the faith, which isn't necessarily placing him on left or right or what you might have might think of as change versus conservatism. Um, but but focusing on the, the human dignity um, of the person. And, you know, um, if, if I were to get to what, you know, the, what is the principled radical core that he has focused in on as Pope? And it is, I, I would say it's the teaching of the Second Vatican Council that, um, that we have to unpack further as Christians and as Catholics, and as as actually brothers and sisters, uh, no matter what our faith background is across the world, or no background at all, no faith background, but that we share a fundamental human dignity. As Catholics, I, I believe that because I believe everyone's created in the image and likeness of God. But in that shared human dignity, uh, I can unpack uh, answers to questions that have emerged in modern society 
in ways that might shift my perspective or my presuppositions. And so, you know, the, the course of the, the church's teaching, for instance, on the death penalty has always been that it was moral, but um, it should be limited. And and he's he's come out and basically said, given our, our, our deeper and more profound understanding of human dignity, we should not use the death penalty anymore at all, and that it's inadmissible in all cases. And, and that's because he's gone back to the root of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God, and then applied that root principle to our situation today in which we have no exigent need as a society who can imprison people to execute someone. And so now applying that today in our context where we have all the capability in the world to imprison someone safely and keep society safe from them if they're a danger to, if they're a danger to society, well, we can, we can now say that, well, we should not in our mercy and in our care for that person as a human being, we shouldn't execute that, that person. Now that's going to fundamentally challenge people because um, you know, the crimes that are committed might deserve death in a pure sense of justice. They might be, you, you know, they might call call out to heaven, uh, based on their evil, that you know this person should be put to death. But but Francis has called us to look back at the core and then apply that core again in a renewed way to to these situations. And he's done that, you know, with immigration. He's done that um, with, I think, uh, our political discourse. He's done that on issues related to the environment. And so he's speaking, I think, to a very broad audience in the world, saying that we might not share a theological perspective, but we do share this sense that the human person and the human being matters, matters in a fundamental way. I know I matter, you know you matter, that, that, that our actions have ethical consequences, that our actions affect each other. And given that we can discourse on that, even if we might not share a faith background, we can contribute to uh, the community in, in a way that better reflects the, the, the root human dignity that, that we all share and that, and that should be reflected in our social interactions and in our politics. Wise and deep words. Um, Father Brad Easterbrook, thank you for the time. Good luck to you as you come back to San Diego and ultimately back into the military uh, with the United States Marine Corps and U.S. Navy sailors who keep us safe. Thank you, Steve. It's been great to be on.